0: Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I have been around cybersecurity for the last 20 years and I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory for companies. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I've been intrigued to learn how a company starts. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have Sai here from Discern to share their story and their motivation to start the company. Sai, can you please tell me about yourself and the company?
1: Sai Venkatraman, co-founder, CEO of Discern Security. I'm based in the Bay Area. Discern is the third startup that I'm part of. Before Discern, we started Security Advisor, acquired by no Before. I was part of Fort Scale, acquired by RSA, I was in McAfee for a while. Discern is an idea that's a continuation of other things that we've done in life. We felt that you know, a lot of customers were underutilizing their security tools. And so, could we help them get and maximize their potential from all their existing security tools? Can we help them build a cybersecurity mesh where all their security products work better together? That's the core area behind the sun.
0: This is interesting, and it almost stole my first question because I wanted to ask what was the motivation to start it. And you have answered it because you basically continue to do what you did before. But let's go a bit deeper. Like, What happened? Not so far ago, not so far ago. You guys started a new company. You actually just came out of stealth a couple of weeks ago. What happened during this time is that you decided, okay, let's start the company. Even so, there's 4,000 companies. We're going to start ours.
1: Yeah. We met a whole bunch of CISOs. I'll tell you the story. I met this CISO, local and friendly to me, and we logged into his CrowdStrike account. And when we logged in, it had been almost two years since he had it. And we noticed that he had made no changes in any of the controls, any of the policies. CrowdStrike was doing its job. CrowdStrike was figuring out all kinds of things, and he had not even turned on device control, for example. And there was data leaving his company. And there was plenty of low hanging fruit in terms of controls that he could turn on to safeguard his company. And so that got us thinking, hey, is there something we can do here? Customers have paid for products, but they are not making use of the products they paid for. That's the opportunity we saw. This
0: is interesting because in one way, we can say this will be the motivation of the company to use all the features correctly, what we call best practice. Even so, I don't really like the term because best practice is written by a person not always going to align to the environment. So you guys decided to take this on opportunity and basically create something universal that will be able to talk to with many different products and make sure there is a better practices or there's ideas how to do it better for them. And it's funny because this is probably will not be possible around 80 years ago. When we had everything on-prem and they had no APIs, so this entire idea will not work.
1: Exactly, exactly. And that's where our team, even previously, we focused on the human problem, but we used APIs to integrate and model the human, and we built a whole bunch of integrations. The company before that, we did that as well. We have a long and strong background in integrations, and now it's about the APIs. But the other point that you made, each company, the best practice is unique to them. So we also need to learn the customer's environment, the customer's risks. And so we need to come with recommendations that make sense for the customer and that are consumable by that customer. And so the problem is twofold. Learn the customer, but also the integrations are in place. And we are seeing that vendors are giving us API access to their risks, to their controls, some of the vendors even allow us to write controls using APIs, which is new.
0: So you say there is no kick-cutter approach. I cannot just sell everything to everybody the same Everybody
1: everybody's going to be happy? No, it doesn't work like this anymore. There's some shared foundation. And obviously, as you build a company, as you get scaled, you're going to have these learnings. Customers always teach us. And so I'm sure there's a little bit of a cookie, but it's not, you can never take a full cookie cutter
0: approach. I think it makes sense. When we grow up, we always have to eat meat and vegetables and that's it. And now everybody decides that, okay, we want to eat this, you want to eat that. Maybe you have allergy for that. So we cannot just say how you're supposed to feed yourself. The same is with security. We cannot just say how you should have to do security as well
1: argue a big opportunity for us is that even within the company, policies do not have to be the same for each department. Finance and HR are a little bit different than let's say engineering. Engineer and so granular controls based on the device risk, based on the department, there's an opportunity there as well, even within the company. And the trade, there's always been a trade-off, we are aware of this, between security and productivity. You tune up security too much, you start impacting innovation. And so we need to do this in such a way that companies remain productive and innovator and security works under the hood.
0: So let's go back to the our usual way where we go with the podcast. You have an idea, you started to validate the idea. So besides talking to a few people, you need to make sure other folks will buy it. What did you do to go and reach to people and do validation of the idea?
1: Yeah. So validation of the idea, we did several things. One is we spoke to a lot of CISOs. We know a lot of CISOs from our previous life, but the ultimate validation is when people are willing to invest their money. And so we offered CISOs the opportunity to invest and a bunch of them did. And when People in our profession are willing to invest in your company. That's one form of validation. The other validation also is that we believe in managed security service providers. And so we went and spoke to a bunch of them and asked them, hey, is this a product you will resell? Is this a product you would add to your portfolio? And again, we got significant traction there. Now, there's a spectrum. Any idea that you work on, this is not our first rodeo. There'll be a set of CISOs that say why it won't work or why it's not a good idea There's a set of CISOs who will say, hey, this is a great idea. I love it. And so like that, there's a spectrum. Some CISOs told us, here's why I think your idea won't work. Here's what I think the problem is. And that's important. The no's are always important because you need to go back to them and say, hey, here's how I'm solving your no. So validation is also a multi-stage process. Some CISOs loved it. Some said, here's why it won't work. The most satisfying is when someone who says no starts to say a maybe in meeting two and a yes in meeting three. That's also the other form of validation.
0: You just bring so many cool ideas here. This is so fascinating because I think if you ask 10 years ago, the idea to go to company security leaders and ask them for investing in the company was a bit different because you didn't even once mention traditional disease. You mentioned to people that actually understand how stuff working. They're going to go sideways a bit. So let's say somebody wants to start their own company tomorrow, whatever it is, maybe security cookies, whatever it is. Is this a good idea for everyone to go and try to ask money from a CISO, or it's not going to go for everyone and they're going to be dependent on the problems I'm solving or domain they're solving?
1: Yeah, the first thing is there are many kinds of CISOs. Some CISOs will not invest, some CISOs are aligned with VCs. So I think you should always talk to CISOs. If you're going to sell to the CISO, some amount of validation, some amount of conversations, you need to talk to them because they can be design partners. If they invest, obviously there's conflict of interest and they may not end up buying your tool. That's a risk that you're taking. But still, as you build the product, the lesson I've learned at least is that you need CISOs to be design partners. Your product built in isolation is not going to be a great product. Everything that we build, we've had at least two or three CISOs working with us, giving us feedback, making the product work. And so I think conversations with CISOs is a must do. Now, whether you take money from some of them, is a personal choice, both for you and for the CISO. You can always go to VCs who have CISOs on their advisory panel or board and take money from them too. And there are pros and cons to take money. Once you take money, the probability of them becoming a customer kind of goes down. That's the trade-off. That's good.
0: Okay, you went to multiple people and I guess because of previous connections, they were willing to talk to you. Some of them liked it. Some of them wanted to invest. I'm guessing some of them wanted to become a design partners. So it's a win, depending on who you talk to. What do you do now? Do you actually use the money for hiring people? Or do you look for more money to hire more people? Or What's the next step for you?
1: Yeah, it's always milestones. Personally, I'm a fairly conservative fundraiser. So the money we've raised, we use it to build the product. The first revenue, I would say the first few million, the founders got to do almost themselves. And that's the only way that you get that customer intimacy to truly build a scalable product. So what we are going to do with the money we've raised is almost entirely product. We'll do some marketing, but 90% of the money will be used for hiring people and other expenses around building a world-class product.
0: Hiring people is tricky. First of all, majority of them are going to be remote. Second of them, how do you decide who to hire? They can be very smart, but will they going to be a team players. And this is part called like culture idea. How do you create a culture or how did you knew what's the culture, maybe from previous previous work you did to understand what kind of people you will
1: hire? Yeah, this is tricky and there's always an error rate. I'll tell you in my last company, I would say probably 25% of our technical hires were not necessarily right for us and a much higher percentage of our sales hires did not quite work out for our company. And the reasons are manyfold. It's hard for salespeople to come in and sell a startup product. And so that's much more trickier. Even on the technical side, it's a small team. The world is shifting, new ways of working together. And and so even on the technical side, it's inevitable. There's going to be an error rate. If 80% of our hires work out, I'd be very happy. The second part of it is hiring. It's got to be a mix of people within your network and people outside your network. The ultimate thing is if you work with someone for five to 10 years and there's trust, it's easy to start off. But then you can't just stay with people you already know. You've got to expand. You need new skills. You need new energy. So you've got to go out. you got to talk. Again, you got to do the reference checks. And the reference checks within your network, three degrees within your network, again, are much more valuable than, say, people you don't know at all. And so for us, what's worked well is hiring a mix of people where a part of people are people that we've worked with in the past and some of them are new new skills, new energy. Them you talk to and all of us talk, all the three co-founders talk. Investors too sometimes come in and give their opinion and then we can make a decision. But still things go wrong. There's no way to avoid that.
0: Makes sense. Did you sit down with your partners and were thinking, what are the cultures? What is the culture's ideas? And then maybe some like, in this house, we don't do that. On this house, we do that, for example.
1: The biggest problem, especially in a startup like ours, is where people take stands and they're not willing to compromise. And it's my way or the highway. You have these strong personalities who may be very smart, but then they take a stand and nobody else agrees. And even if nobody else agrees, this is the architecture I want. This is what I'm going to do. What you're saying is stupid. The reality of startups is you always need to compromise. I feel, you know, culturally... People who can move fast, who can take risks, and then who will fix things quickly, even if something is broken. One of the reasons companies like to work with startups is that we are responsive and we give them the service that they need, and we can quickly tinker. If there's a specific change that they need, we can tinker it. We can make our product work for our customers. It's the customer intimacy. It's a superior quality of service. Large companies cannot launch new features at the same velocity that we can And so what we need is someone who can even work with these customers and help solve their problems and solve it at a fast clip. The only reason, at least one of the main reasons why customers buy a startup or a large company is that we can solve their problems a little bit better, their personal problems. And we learn from it and see how we can scale that.
0: I think it's just not better. I think you care about them because if you're going for a very big company, they have so many hoops to jump to make sure you have to develop for them. And in a small company, you understand you may be going to get the product that's not going to be perfect, but you can influence the product and you can make sure there is part of the product that's going to be working for you. It's actually one of the reasons why you don't want one big design partner because then it becomes a DevOps shop only for them. Yes. Let's switch gears a bit and talk about tasks and prioritizations and how you get things done. So you running the company, but you have a, also a development. There is a sales part that you're probably part of. It, but so there's a many different tasks. How do you make sure tasks are done? How do you prioritize tasks? And how you make sure the other people in the company are doing their stuff as well without being too annoying or the micromanager?
1: I think prioritization, there are always disagreements. So we have three co-founders. And one of the good things is that we were the same three in the previous company as well. So we can disagree. The key to prioritization is when you can disagree, have these agreements out in the open and then say, Hey, these are the top three priorities. the founders need to agree that's step one. Then once you agree, you roll it out to the rest of the organization and being too hands on with smart people, it's tricky. And so you set milestones for me personally, you agree the high level priorities. You agree, the roadmap, you agree on the sales side, you agree the milestones, the meetings, the targets. And what's going to happen in three months, six months, OKRs is actually a great way. Three-month OKRs, especially in a startup, you may even have one-month OKRs. And then once you agree to that, you manage based on those milestones and OKRs.
0: Do you use some kind of a task management between all of you guys to understand who's doing what, or it's mainly words and emails?
1: So we use a number of tools, actually. Tooling is quite important, even though we are young. On the sales side, I use HubSpot quite a bit and aggressively use it to manage both marketing and our CRM. On the product side, again, we have a range of tools that we use to manage our roadmap at a feature level, at an overall level, to track everything. So technology is a big enabler. And then we meetings. It's people, process, and technology, right? Makes sense. So we use the tools, and then there's the process. Your weekly stand-ups. You don't want too many of those big companies. We all work in big companies. They do too many meetings and that slows things down. So I like weekly stand-ups if needed, a couple of meetings, and then individual meetings as needed to track progress. So the process is important. The tools are already in place. And the people themselves, as you pointed out, hiring and culturally, what's the sort of engagement that they prefer? Those are the three things really to keep delivering.
0: I'm going to ask you a question that I don't think I ever ask anyone. And the reason I'm asking you because imagine three people and guys work with each other in the past. So there's a history there. If there's a conflict, do you guys decide it a long time ago? How do you do conflict resolution? There's a, I don't know, you're going to paintball, you're going to somewhere else to make sure you can actually resolve the problem. And you know how to do it because you did it in the past. If you know, you
1: disagree. Usually there's, there's someone internal. We don't go outside. There's going to be conflict, but then that's when you bring in the third guy to sit in, listen in, take a stand. And so the role of the therapist, the role of the conflict resolver is someone internal. And so that's where if you have two people who think differently or three sometimes. And so within between the founders, there are three of us and two of us have a disagreement. The third guy can think and say, here's what I think. But the more the best way to resolve conflict is where you can disagree. You can sleep on it, come back the next day and see if you can resolve it yourself. If you find a way to to get to a resolution between the two of you and you get better and better at it as you work together more and more or how the other guy thinks, I feel like the areas we've progressed, especially as a founding team is we've learned to resolve conflicts better without requiring a third party. That's part of the learning curve as well. We've never used anybody outside for conflicts. Part of startups is trust. And when your problems start going outside investors, let's say you go to an investor, you're starting to use up your chips, which I'm not sure is a good idea.
0: I understand this. I think it's a very good example. And thank you for this. I think it's very valuable because they're listening to us right now. Doesn't matter what they do, but it's important to understand why you have this confrontation. This is because you're trying to support your ego or you're trying to do something bigger for the company. What's more important here?
1: The thing is, if you really care about something, you fight for it. So there's nothing wrong in confrontation.
0: Smart, uh, agree, agree. Because the reason is, why do you care about it? What is the reason you care about it? <laughs> Let's talk about sales. So you lead sales in the company and as the founder, you're doing founder leads sales. Now you're not big enough yet, you're not huge. So I'm guessing you're still doing the majority of the sales, I'm not sure yet, but you can tell me. How hard it is to let go and give the sales to somebody else. They will know how to sell your baby and you need to let go and do other things like build a roadmap and understand
1: what to do in the future? That's a difficult question. It also depends on the sales motion that you're going to embrace. Let's say you're going to do largely MSSP-led sales. Then you set it up, you hire a different sort of person, and the MSSP is going to do your sales. So somebody else is going to do your sales anyway. In that case, you're an enabler. You give them the materials they need. But even Let's say I'm going to do direct sales and every startup does some direct sales at the beginning. And there, I feel if you hire them too early, however good that salesperson is, they're not a founder and it takes them time to learn how to sell, to win that credibility. I almost feel the first million, the founders got to do themselves. There's no alternative. It's a question of what you believe in. I believe that the first million dollars of revenue, you can get help. You can hire a marketing person. You can hire a quasi salesperson. But you got to be in the center of discussions and you got to be talking to the customer and that's the only way you know what's going to work what's not going to work you need that customer relationship you can use the sales guy to help you work with you but the first million got to leave and that's just too critical for the company once you hit the million dollar mark that's when you do a series a you hire more salespeople. Some people say the first three, four million, first five million the founders got to do. But I feel once you have a good hang of things, you've done a bunch of deals and you think that this product market fit, you can actually go and hire the right people. But irrespective, you need some people supporting you. And if you define that, hey, this is the support I need, you can hire the right person.
0: If you can go back to the beginning, it's not very far. Would you do anything differently when you start the company?
1: Yeah, there are a bunch of things I would do differently, even for this company. This is not our first company, but still, I feel like we started talking to VCs too early before the idea was fully baked. The way I would do it differently, we've talked to a lot of CISOs, but I would have done it first and then talk to investors. That's one thing that we would have fixed. The second thing is we came with an idea that the fundamental idea is the same, but we've expanded on it in the year that we've been working on it. And we've changed prioritization a couple of times and we've had a few flips. It's not cost us a lot but understanding what are the first two, three things that you would show a customer. That is something that it took us a while to figure out. Nobody's gonna trust the start. Where
0: is the value factor?
1: Exactly. And the question is, when we started, we thought we could maybe build an engine that will just write your controls, but that's not what customers want. What customers want is they want a baseline, they want a score, they want mapping to miter, they want recommendations, they want it in a consumable way. You need to build trust with the customer, whatever you're doing. There's a life cycle of things that you're doing. And so what are the things that help you build trust? What are the top three things that help you build trust with the customer? So it took us some time to figure that out. I think we could have optimized that process a little bit further. Very
0: well, great. I'm going to ask you a more personal question. You all have bad days. You all have sometimes losing battles or whatever it is. What does Sai do for himself? When he has a bad day, how do you get back to yourself, get back on the horse, meditation, running, whatever it is, spending time with the family?
1: Yeah, I I have a few different things. One is I play tennis. So I get out and then play tennis. You have a bad day in tennis, you focus on work. You have a bad day in work, you focus on tennis. (laughs) It works both ways. It's a
0: good idea. So physical activity.
1: Physical activity, something that's unrelated to And then family, obviously, I have a daughter. And little daughter, spending time in her world, again, can be a stress buster. So a couple of things. Tennis. I also play cricket. Sports, in general, is the best way, I feel, to cool down. And it also gives you the downtime for you to make decisions clearly. When you're in the weeds, you often make the wrong decisions. And so getting off, playing sports, switching off for a little bit, that's actually important.
0: Great. We're going to switch topics. We're going to talk about dark side. Dark side is when we talk about stuff that didn't work. And you maybe learned a lesson, maybe didn't learn the lesson, but it was still an unpleasant situation. So please share stories, what you can definitely not something under NDA, not something public that you can tell about it. And if there's a lesson, there's a lesson as well.
1: So I'll broaden it, not just this startup, but all my startups. It happened in the startup before that. The worst thing that can happen to a startup is somebody steals your IP. There are 3,000 startups, there are 200 large cybersecurity companies. If your startup has any traction, you will have this large cybersecurity company approach you. They will tell you, they'll offer you an OEM, it's a large contract, and then you spend six months chasing them, working with them, and then after six months, they say, we're going to build it ourselves. (laughs) And you've taught them everything, you've given them licenses to your product, they've taken all the shots of your UX, your product, they even know what's the architecture inside, and then they're going to go build it themselves. Most of the time, startups still out-execute the big company, but they have the go-to-market engine. So it happened to me once in security advisor, once in the company before that, i will be very careful. Now I feel like I have a better radar for who's going to do that to us. I also have a better sense of how to play that you don't give anybody your license. If you think they're going to steal your IP. So the worst thing that's happened to me is when somebody takes us along for a ride and then they say they're going to launch it and they're going to build it themselves. As a startup, at this stage, people are looking at you for your IP, for your product, not necessarily for your go-to-market engine. And so we got to protect it. That's the worst burn stories I've experienced.
0: Sure. Sai, thank you very much. Very interesting episode. You're very, from the heart, very smart person, and I think you're building something great. It's always great to talk to someone that did it a couple of times. So the lessons they learned is a multiplier of everything. So thank you very much for being here today.
1: Thank you,
0: Evgeny. Everybody's listening. Thank you very much. And we'll see you in the next episode.